All right, how's it going? It's Matt and you're listening to episode 30 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. 30 episodes, feels like yet another mini milestone in the life of this project of mine. So a huge thanks to everybody who supported the show up to this point. And I'm happy to say that I've got a proper guest of honour for this, the final instalment of my Aussie omnibus. None other than all-time surfing legend Tom Carroll. Now, Tom is truly one of surfing's era-defining figures, a two-times world champ who by his feet took the sport by the scruff of the neck and dragged it into the future. How? By dominating and redefining the way waves like Pipeline were surfed for one, and also by generally redefining what it meant to be a high-performance professional surfer during the 80s and 90s. And yet, there's a lot we don't discuss in this episode. When you've had a career like Tom's, a lot of stories get played and replayed over and over again as a cursory Google search will reveal. So I'm going to come right out and say it now. We didn't discuss his well-documented addiction issues, for example. And I didn't get him to talk about that uh, infamous snap turn at Pipeline yet again. There are literally endless articles and interviews where this ground is extensively covered. And as regular listeners will know, the whole point of the podcast is to have a natural conversation and see where it ends up. So sure, I did give Tom the option to discuss these things, but what I was really interested in speaking to this legend about was his relationship with injury and pain. Why? Because throughout his surf career, Tom Carroll's been fighting pain and asking himself the same question. How can I surf to the maximum of my ability despite the physical injuries I'm suffering from? And as you'll hear, this process began at an early age when Tom was about 16, dislocated his knee while surfing uh, a pretty scary sounding New South Wales slam, slab. And he served on that for four years before his first bout of corrective surgery in 1981, basically without a functioning knee or functioning knee ligaments. This worked, albeit after a fashion, but still left him in immense pain and needing to manage the situation. And was the situation right throughout his pipe-slaying world title winning heyday. And as he explains in our chat, these scenarios led him to a unique relationship with injury and finding ways of managing pain while still maintaining the highest possible level of performance. And that's the theme that continued throughout his surfing career. And in 2017, played out in the latest episode when Tom had a knee replacement, swiftly followed by elective rotator cuff surgery to repair a shoulder worn down by decades of high-performance surfing. And what this means is that Tom Carroll is effectively still asking the same questions he's always done, but with a wholly different outcome in mind. Not dominating Pipeline, although he still does. I'm going to post a clip on the show notes that demonstrates that from a few years back, which is amazing. Not winning world titles, but surfing to a level he's accustomed to as he heads into his 60s and hopefully beyond. Now, as a board rider in his early 40s, who's already uh, starting to feel the the march of time, this is something that I and I'm sure a lot of listeners can empathise with. And even if you're in your teens or 20s and living out those indestructible board riding years where you think your body's going to last forever... Tom's attitude to injury is something we can all learn from. As he says, it's quite a journey in this vessel, the body, and he's brilliant on what he terms corrective experiences and how we need to embrace them and learn when to stick and when to twist so you can live to ride another day. Overall, as you'll hear, Tom Carroll's got a really generous view on what surfing and action sports constitute. And I really like the pacing of this one. Such a lovely, mellow chat that unfolded in its own sweet time and during which Tom dropped some real gems accrued from a lifetime of pushing the limits and thinking about his own relationship with physicality and the sport that he loves. So yeah, a fitting episode to mark a new year of the podcast, I think you'll agree. 
And I want to make, I want to say huge thanks to Tom for taking the time to meet me during my trip to Sydney and for embracing the spirit of the podcast so wholeheartedly. Hope you enjoy this one because I really did. Here it is, my chat with Tom Carroll on The Corrective Experience. Enjoy. Well, it'd be good to start with the with the shoulder, even right. though you did just explain it. But um, so yeah, yeah okay. you're uh, you're a month in. You said to, to after rotator cuff surgery, Tom. That's right. Yeah. So, so how, how's that going? Um, it's always hard to sit still with a sling and actually sleep with a sling. Yeah, right. Um, that's been a big challenge. It's like having a backpack with like a loaded backpack. <laughs> Small loaded backpack on all day, 24-7. Yeah. Um, but um, really it was just, you know, my shoulder started playing up um, during training. In There was an acute event in 2011. And then there was a, uh, a moment in September. Okay. Where I had an acute moment and I had to... Um, yeah, on a snowboard when I was snowboarding. Oh, really? Where yeah. Were you, where were you riding? Just down here in, um, down at Threadbow. Okay. Down in, yeah. And I was literally kind of just came off uh, a total knee replacement surgery in that I had in April. Yeah, you've had a busy year. I had a big, busy year rehabbing yeah. and get, bringing myself out of uh, like elective surgery. Okay. It's not, a, not something I'm, I mean, I definitely needed to have this knee done. It was something that come from an injury when I was 16 years of age, surfing this crazy slabby wave, and uh, I got annihilated. And, and in 1977, when you dislocated your knee as a surfer, there wasn't really that much information to go on. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it took four years before I got surgery, and there was a lot of damage in the joint. Yeah, I was reading when I was researching this that, yeah, you would... Basically, you were surfing without functioning ligaments, right, at that time? Yeah, yeah, for about four years. And and, and, you, that, and you were having to, like, reset it when you were in the sea? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I just got used to putting it back in a joint. Right. And popping it back in and then having bits and pieces float around. And, right. Uh, in the end, it was unbearable. Um, but um, the cost of that was the surface of the joint. And by the time I was sort of 40 years of age, I was looking for a replacement knee. Okay. And, um, but I didn't get, and the doc said then that oh, it's going to be 30 years time and I, you know, my jaw dropped. I went, oh my God, i got to deal with this pain for another 30 years. Well, I dealt with it for 17 years <laughs> and that was it. I kind of threw my hands in the air and I finally got that surgery this year. And, um, you How know, is it? It's doing good huh? at the moment. Um, it's, you looks know, good. It, it looks, it's great. You know, before it was this giant. What happens when we've got a lot of damage in a joint and it gets osteoarthritis in it, it just grows on itself. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, you see it in people's hands, don't you, when the joints just that's, start swelling. That's correct. Yeah. And, and I had a knee like that. It's like almost like it was like a, a growing kind of, it looked like, I don't know if you've seen what a, uh, like a polo, you know, polo on a horse, polo yeah, yeah, yeah. ball looks like. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a large white ball. Okay. It was like a, a polo ball was inside my knee. Right. Uh, and growing uh, like exponentially 
as the years went on, the activity went on, it just got bigger and bigger. So how did you handle that mentally? Did you just try and ignore it? I did all kinds of things in strategies, which kind of worked for a little while and then it didn't work. Right. And in particular was one strategy which definitely didn't, eventually didn't work, was sort of ignoring it and, and, ma- and making out that it wasn't a part of my body. Right. Um, that was quite eventually being very damaging and I had to kind of turn around and welcome it back into my body on a psychological level and which actually helped it down the track okay deal with the pain and uh, discomfort and the inflammation and taught me a lot about diet taught me so much this injury to my knee it was incredible because you were looking for solutions to try and always looking for solutions right and, and working with these subconscious strategies and all kind of levels of kind of ways of dealing with a, a, a right leg that was just increasingly becoming less and less functional. And, and mm. obviously we should say that this is through the absolute high of your career as well. So this is mm. like the 80s basically yeah. when you were on the mm. tour, mm. winning world titles, mm. winning at pipe. Yeah. How did it affect your actual surfing then, your, like your surfing well, ability? Well, it definitely um, probably pronunciated my style of a backfoot surfer. Everyone would go, oh, you're a backfoot power surfer. But yeah, yeah. I was really just compensating for a, the lack of a really functional right right leg. Right. Um, the so whole that's where time. your style came from. And so, yeah, it kind of pronounced my career as, you know, like a, a backfoot surfer, which was my left foot, my left leg. Yeah. It got stronger and bigger and, and compensated for the weaker front leg. And so that just sort of, you know, like, really pronounced my surfing in that way and and my style of surfing and the way I approached the wave. If I had two really similar strengths in the legs, I probably would have been a different surfer, I'd imagine. In fact, a lot different. Um, but, um, but I love the... I think the fact that injury can t- actually be what looks like a crap thing at first, like, and I like that term or the gift wrapped in shit you know was sort of revealed to me down the track in all these cool ways like you know like it taught me how to train it taught me how to you know look at my performances differently how I actually create and recreate and creatively work around situations and it actually taught me a lot of uh, you know discipline um, you know just to approach you know, what I loved most um, with a real kind of commitment. And is, so um, is, is this because you're, you're famed for your, you know, how you trained and how you approached professional surfing? Is that, was this the genesis of that then? This is where that kind of came from? I think so. I think, you know, that was part of the reason why I started training was because of, you know, rehabbing my knee. Yeah. And uh, even though I was training a little bit before it, but... The knee was really something that sort of made me well look at other ways of doing things um, and 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 heal and and I had, it gave me a lot of time off, <laughs> you know, time out of the water and sure. imagine what I really want to be doing in the water when you got back. Yeah, and what what I was going to do with it, and, you know, what was really interesting to me about it and what I loved about surfing and and how important it was to me deep down um and so yeah i think and i think injury really gives us that that point 
of contact with something that we really love. Um, That's hard though. Mm. That's really not e easy. No. You, it, was that something you had to work on, that finding the posit positivity in those situations? Or did you um, always kind of have that mindset? No, I think we kind of just, we go to those dark, deep, deeper places, you know, that, yeah. um, um, you know, like, you know, we fight the reality that we're in and we've realized <laughs> at some point that I'm fighting in the wrong way, you know, like this is too much pain or this is too much discomfort uh, or this is pointless, <laughs> you know, I'm putting all this effort into one way and, you know, there's, and, and it doesn't really always come from inside me, it might come from someone close to me or some feedback that I get in other areas. But also it, it always, I think, um, pointed me towards something that I really loved. Like I just did and I didn't, uh, and I always wanted to come back to it. Right. Um, and, and by watching other surfers, great surfers surf or just be near the ocean, you know, doing things in different ways around the ocean, uh, not just surfing, uh, riding a board, but doing it in other ways, body yeah. surfing. In fact, when I was coming back from the knee surgery, when I was 20, I used to ride a ski, you know, like a, a surf ski. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what we call goat boats. <laughs> and, um, and people that we used to just tell to get out of the water. Right. I all of a sudden became one of those guys. Right. In the water. Like, yeah. and I was a nightmare on this, <laughs> on this goat boat, you know. I was a goat on a boat. And <laughs> but I had a, a cast on and it was uh, one way of being able to get out there and right. engage in the ocean and ride a wave. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. It was like I could ride it. And it was really a different way of doing it. So it just opened my eyes and... Um, you know, that there was other ways of doing things and not just a one way, but I love surfing. That was, that was where I wanted to be and, and I wanted to do it really well. Yeah. So it was, um, it focused me on, on, it helped discipline me and focus my mind, uh, which is highly distracted, um, highly ill-disciplined. Really? <laughs> and so I'll, I'll just sort of, yeah, I'll, I'll, but it was really helpful. Yeah. So, then, um, mm. so since you've been the gap between the, the knee surgery and, and the shoulder surgery, did you you were in the water? You were surfing? Um, in the, oh, the knee, as far as the first surgery, or just the, the most the, recent? The one? most recent one. The most recent one. Because I'm interested um, to what the difference in your surfing is. Okay, the new knee. The new knee. Yeah. Okay, okay, there. So the when I, you know, I was really surrendered to that that the process of that surgery. I'd made a really good decision. I got, got in there and the doctor was right. Tom, you've been dealing with a lot of pain with that knee for a long time. I don't want you surfing for around 14 to 16 weeks. Now, I heard that you could actually – I was bouncing off other total knee replacement recipients for about a year before right. making the decision and watching them. And one of them was particularly a good surfer and he, he was surfing within eight weeks. So I was sort of had this kind of mindset that I'll, I'll be, you know, won't worry about what the doc says or yeah. being in eight weeks, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> As we do. Yeah. Um, but the more I, the closer I got to this doctor and understood that he was really, uh, he said, look, your pain threshold is the danger here because you can deal with a lot more pain. So you're going to push this thing beyond its limits too quick. So we've got to be super gentle. And it made that started to make a lot of sense to me. 
he kind of woke me up to that. Uh, and he was very adamant about it. And, and, uh, and the more I started doing the work around it, uh, the more I started to think, well, I better give myself time here and just come back with a long-term vision and rather than this short-term idea. Okay. And, um, and, and I think that really play, played out really well for me. And I was surfing within 16 weeks and, and I was surfing with confidence um, pretty, pretty quickly. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's definitely, there's nothing, yeah, it, it feels great. You know, like I, I'm, I'm real lucky. It's definitely a different feeling having yeah. a, uh, a prosthetic because there's different information. There's actually no information coming back from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, it does. I mean, that's another mm, question I was going to ask you. Mm. Did you have to almost relearn how to use it? Well, I've got, um, uh, I have this really extraordinary friend. Um, he does. A, he actually does a pod, podcast called Surf Mastery. His name's um, uh, Michael Frampton. And he turned me on to f- this practice called, uh, what he was studying deeply into functional neurology. Uh, and he got me onto some ideas and, and working around and understanding how to move and, and wake up that part of my body in order to get functional, uh, get the rest of the body working with it rather than sort of not knowing it's there, what's there, because I'm not getting any feedback. Okay. And functional neurology is kind of a bit of a broad term, but he was studying, studying in a specific way. And that started getting me this feedback um, and getting the brain working with what's there and waking it up, waking that whole area up in all these different bizarre ways, right. which I never would have thought of. Okay, so um, like, can you explain what uh, that looks like? Yeah, you sort of do specific um, work with eyes. It's all uh, a lot of eyesight and, and feedback and then, and then challenging the body to balance in certain ways. Um, and do exercises whilst stimulating even the skin. So you're getting the stimulation around the skin rather than inside of the joint because there's no feedback coming back from the inside of the joint. So if I want to have performance out of my body, man, it's probably all right for someone who's not wanting to do what I do. Yeah, sure. Just to walk out and do specific basic physiotherapy. But if I'm asking the body to do complex movements and get stronger, uh, in certain ways, I need to kind of look outside the square and, yep. and that's what he started to do. So, yeah, functional neurology is a bit of a broad term and if you go and search that, you'll get all sorts of different stuff. But he was really working specifically on challenge the body um, using eyesight in particular, eyesight and balance work, um, and then stimulating the area outside the body to actually get the body to reconfigure information. Wow, okay. Mm, yeah. And is that gonna be ongoing? Yeah, it's a bit ongoing. I'm, I'm a bit out of practice with it, do little bits and pieces with it. Yeah, a bit preoccupied with the new one there. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm back <laughs> here, but I'm doing some work with the squat work. Right. Um, with it still, and it's, I do kind of need, I need to actually revisit him. He's, he's over in New Zealand at the moment, but uh, right. I need to get him back, because it's constant. It's quite a challenge working yeah. on it, but um, brilliant work. Um, that's, you know, the knee's great. It's actually really good timing because um, I can walk now. Yeah. 
and I couldn't really walk for very long with the old me. I'd actually look for park car parks, car parking spaces close as I possibly could to places. I was looking for the lifts, not the chair right. stairs. Uh, I was I was just really any kind of distance walking was right. really difficult. Um, I could surf, but I couldn't walk <laughs> or run. Um, this knee now I can walk at a good distance without any repercussions. Yeah. And it's really cool. Um, so hence now I'm locked in. Time for the shoulder. I'm not allowed to drive. Right. <laughs> yeah. One down, another one to one go. One down. This one is, is in the process, yeah. So you noticed it when you were snowboarding, you were saying? Um, what happened was when I was snowboarding, um, there's a bit of a story around that. I, um, I was finally able to do the snowboarding. Yeah. After a few years off. Yeah. So my second daughter, Mimi, she, we used to go snowboarding together one-on-one, just father-daughter trip um, back when she was around, you know, 11, 12, 13. And we had a great time doing that. We hadn't really done that for quite some time. And September, there was a lot of snow, really nice snow here. Yeah, you had a good season, didn't you? Yeah, and um, my knee was in good shape and she'd just been away for a few months and she got home and I said, well, my knee's ready. Maybe we should do a little snow, you know, go down for a couple of days and if there's a good dump and good dump happened, I got my snowboard all set up and we said, let's do it. So we went down, had a couple of days. First day was really good. She kept me in check didn't do anything too crazy did it really mellow and then the second day we went to this place we'd never been to before and it was just a beautiful morning uh, there was very few people where we were we we're having a great time and then about midday it started to get a bit sticky the snow and I thought well let's go in we've had enough and her partner was coming for the next day which was a Saturday uh, we were gonna go out together for that day and um and I was looking forward to that. So let's go in, take a break. And I was going down right at the bottom of that run, really sticky bit of snow. I went, just caught an edge in that stickiness. Normally just roll out of it like normal, like not a big deal. Yeah. I went in, I hit, I went into my shoulder. Normally would have been cool, but I got up out of that. And I got, oh my God, maybe in my shoulder, I just can't really lift my arm. Something's really gone on now. And it was giving me a little bit of, carry that that shoulder right prior doing swimming training and doing sprint work it was just after doing sprint work in the pool it was starting to give me a little bit of a, a grindy kind of crunchy thing and it was a bit weak doing other exercises i was going something's going on with that shoulder you had a few warning signs uh, a few warning signs but yeah. now it was really bad yeah like so that's what brought on this current um action of surgery on the rotator cuff because MRI revealed this, well, it was a one-and-a-half-page report. When you get a one-and-a-half-page report on an MRI, it's not good. No, no, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah, you especially, don't want... Especially when you've just had a new knee. Yeah, and so uh, it wasn't something really I wanted to look at. Right. I wanted to try and... Yeah, that's hard. ...not look at any surgery again. And uh, so I went in to do... I was directed towards this really uh, reputable shoulder... Um, specialist uh, physiotherapist, Joe Wernham, and he got me on a program and I started rehabbing it out of that situation. It actually got better and better under that influence. Uh, 
but I went and saw a couple of surgeons in the meantime to have a look at the MRIs, have a look at what can be done and what's yeah. going on, what their take on it is. As the sports physician that I go to see, he said, who usually keeps me away from surgery, he said, you're going to have to look at surgery. Right. Which was kind of not what I wanted to hear again. No. So first surgeon said, no way I'm going to go in there, Tom, it's too far gone. <laughs> well, what's the process here? Yeah. He said, well, go and see us some other surgeons, cause, oh, but I'm not going to touch that. And I'm going, oh, no way I'm going to, well. Um, so I had a couple of other commitments, stand-up paddle camps that I do in, in, uh, in Fiji yep. with a good friend of mine, Dave Kalama. So I completed those and went and saw the surgeons straight after those. The, after all the rehab that I was doing twice a day, this religious program I was doing, my, my shoulder was getting function back, right. good function. With this torn off rotator cuff tendon was gone, but it was still functional. So what were you doing there, just building up the muscles? Yeah, around, I was doing these it. really intricate movements okay. um, associated with stabilizing and resetting the, the scapula, the, the shoulder blade at the back, yeah. which had lost its control under the influence of a rotator cuff right. and the pain messages okay. that we get uh, uh, and the influence of that lost rotator cuff tendon. Yeah. So, and what happens there, it just starts, um, it sends messages to the muscles that, uh, that hold the, the, the shoulder blade in place and tight. It starts floating out and starts losing its, its angle of um, the way it sort of behaves. And so we have to reset that by doing a various intricate little exercises in a really mindful way. Yeah. And that started to come back into place, started to work quite well. All my other muscles were in, in, in working well and, and compensating well. But I went and saw this one surgeon that said, look, I can do something with this. Uh, he, was very, he was a very good surgeon. Uh, I went and saw, he said, look, let's go in as soon as we can because uh, there's a lot of uh, still some fresh stuff there we can get a hold of. Yeah. I can't guarantee getting the full tendon, but... Anyway, um, I went and saw another surgeon to check up on him, you know, because that's what I like to do. Yeah. And he's, the other surgeon said, yeah, he's going the right direction. So I said, okay. So I went in and just booked a, booked a date and went for it. It really wasn't uh, what I was looking for no. to do this time. But um, anyway, that's, yeah, that's about it. I, I uh, you know, I did have a warning sign in 2011 when I was shooting Storm Surfers with Ross Clark Jones, I yep. tore, uh, tore it then. Um, right. Prior to going down to do the Shipstones shoot, and uh, and that tear was supposedly that. Well, the surgeon then said, "Well, let's get in there and repair that surgically." And I said, "How long is that going to take?" He said, "Oh." Well, you'll be six months out, and I said, "No way!" Right, and that's when I rehabbed it back then too, yeah. and that worked well. But he said, "You'll be back," and right. I'm back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, have mm. you oh, in researching this? I was reading a piece by your brother Nick, in which he said uh, Tom's detail-oriented to the point of um, hypochondria. I think is the phrase that he yeah. used. Have you? Is that always been? Because listening to you talk, it seems like you do really like to find out as much as possible. Mm look at alternative ways of dealing with things, really dig into those details. Is that, yeah. have you always had that trait? Yeah, um, 
I've always had that trait because I think it comes from the knee. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that was the, that was the genesis then of, yeah, of, of like yeah, looking into it. And that's it. I, I I wouldn't say that I'm like a sickly hypochondriac. I just like to look really um, into what's going on. Yeah, deep because there's always it's such an incredible thing our body. It's yeah. like it's got it's not just a one thing going on. It's it's a bunch of things. And also you've made your living from it and your life out of it. Yeah. So and of so it also, being as functioning as possible. So. Yeah. And I've had to really work with it. And I've also gone into denial about it. Yeah. And I've come back to it. It's, yeah. It's uh, quite a journey um, inside this vessel. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because one of the mm. themes that comes up a lot from listeners to this, because I think I do have a lot of listeners that are, that are heading, you know, north of their mid-30s, mm. you know. Yeah. And a lot of people are really fascinated by athletes such as yourself who've managed to stay fit stay healthy keep performing keep riding as much as possible mm. you've obviously talked about a couple of corrective procedures that you've had mm. to have but is there any other insights you could offer that of, of how to keep yourself as healthy as possible to to keep to keep riding really well n- number one yeah always have you you know connect with the view to keep riding yeah <laughs> you know like um uh and and to keep to look outside the square you know like um to look outside the square and and keep an open mind to what's possible for you to i think go gentle on yourself don't go you know a lot of us uh in that kind of you know it's funny coming from me because i've just pushed it but i think um the big message is when we're doing um when we're rehabbing things or we're uh, or, or wanting to actually build build ourselves, we have to start really at the slow end. Yeah, um, have the patience. Have the patience, work up really, really gently into into big things and become aware of, um, you know, what you're putting into your body yeah. in order to get something out. Yeah. Because our, uh, our body is quite delicate and in many ways is incredibly resilient, but... Uh, you know, um, whatever we really put in, we're going to get out. And so... Uh, you can kind of ignore that when you're young as well. Sorry? You can ignore that when you're young as well, can't you? Totally, yeah, you can, yeah. So you like, early yeah. 30s, like, yeah. what? doesn't really matter. Well, and, and some part of me wants to say, enjoy it while it's there. Yeah. <laughs> for, you know, to, to the listeners, because, you, because that's... But also be really aware, aware uh, that at some point, um, the chooks come home to roost. Yeah, yeah. And you ha- <laughs> yeah. Lane Beach, she said mm. similar when mm. we talked last week. She said that that shifted her whole mindset as to how to be a competitor because she got to a point where mm. she realised actually things aren't working in the same way mm. and I can't recover in the same way and I can't mm. compete in the same way. Yeah. When you realised, as you put it, the chickens came home to roost, how difficult was that mentally? Was that, was that something that took a bit mm. of work to... To adapt to that kind of new reality. Well, I think um, if I take my shot, my shoulder as uh, a, a kind of a little example, you know, there was a tap on my shoulder literally in 2011. Yeah. Uh, well, Tom, get surgery, or it's going to come back to get you. Yeah. Uh, and that was coming from someone who knows shoulders back yeah. to front and pretty authoritative, very uh, strong feedback. Yeah. And um, and what I've noticed in all things of the like, there's a little tap on the shoulder and that might be a really, really faint voice for you. Yeah. It might be a really strong voice, but listen to it 
and I think you'll get those from a very young age, yep. um, some really young age. So you'll get them throughout your whole life and those little taps try to listen to the faint ones uh, and what they're saying because they just get louder yep. if you don't listen to them. And so ultimately, which I love, I've got this really classic meditation teacher he calls it a, a corrective experience that's a very <laughs> nice way of framing it, isn't it yeah you, you you'll be in for the corrective experience right. if we're living this life fully we'll have corrective experiences down the track and we'll really feel them <laughs> really deeply feel them and i think that happened for me with a knee um, and all kinds of other things too in my life but what will happen is you'll absolutely if we don't listen to them, take necessarily ac action. That might be non-action too. Action might be sitting still and taking a breath. Um, just as much of an action as getting up and, you know, doing specific things in order to grow um, and get better and more aware of what you're doing. And just get better at what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and improve and grow, I think. Sometimes... When I say, you know, that corrective experience comes along, whatever action it's asking you to do, just, you know, take that action and uh, really listen to it and get feedback from others. Yeah. People that may have, may know what you're going through at that time. Mm. And did things like meditation and, and practicing yoga, which obviously is something that you've mm. done for a long time, mm. did they help process that, these experiences? Um, well, they get, you found? they get you in touch. They keep you in touch with it. Uh, and that's what we want. We're going to keep in touch with what our body's saying because ultimately it has the last say. Yeah. Um, our body is absolutely, absolutely has the last say. I think it, um, I think it's in the scriptures somewhere. I, I'm not a big, um, you know, like a religious guy, but it was, says the, the body holds dominion over the spirit and it does. It ultimately has the last say in this life we're living right now. So try to tap in. Yeah. Keep a good ear out um, for what's, what it's feeling. Yeah. And and let all the feelings come up and let them really have a voice. Mm. I mean, earlier I alluded to the fact that you were coping with this original knee issue throughout mm. the height of your career. Mm. What was it like to cope with that mentally? Because that's obviously completely different. Mm. You know, you, you're trying to compete at, at that mm. level. You try to surf at the level. Clearly, set yourself mm. extremely high standards yeah. for how you wanted to surf. Mm. Um, what ways did you cope with that then? Because that, because you're obviously so aware that you're surfing with a, literally a handicap. You know, like yeah. This. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't so much of a handicap once I had it surgery. Okay. When I was 20. So that improved it. Yeah, because it had been slipping out of joint yeah. for so long, and I'd been trying to deal with that and didn't know how to deal with it i was young driving myself hard yeah and like just a kid and then um the surgery moment came because the corrective experience was quite big yeah because sure. i jumped off this sort of uh brick wall saying goodbye to someone in a kind of a twisted fashion jumping down onto a, a cement driveway which was angled in a certain way all right and then my leg popped out backwards so that was the ultimate corrective experience. I was there writhing on, writhing on the ground in pain, never experienced such pain in my life. And that was that directed me straight towards a really good knee surgeon. 
who said, Tommy, I got this for you, buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Merv Cross, he was a great doctor. He was just like, <laughs> he's quite a funny guy. And he, he just, he, he tied it back up with a hamstring. They do it all the time now. Yeah, right. He's the one that developed hamstring, wow. hamstring graft of the ACL. Uh, and back in 1981. I was about to say, right, yeah. Yeah. So it really had its time then. Yeah, so he did this incredible surgery and all of a sudden the knee was staying together. Right. And I was like, holy, I'm going hard. Yeah. This this thing's staying together, I can do whatever I want to do now. And it focused me, helped me me just get stronger. I came out of that surgery, I was training. It taught me, like I said, it taught me how to train and get me moving. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I just taught me exactly what I wanted to do. It focused me. There was no doubt in my mind what I wanted to do at that point. Yeah. Mm. What I mean, when you look back on those years, the sort of '80s competitive years, from this perspective, what mm. what are your what are your favourite memories from those years? Um. Oh, like yeah, winning well, winning world titles was was a really good feeling. Yeah. Um, Winning events, uh, you know, really challenging myself in places like Hawaii. Yeah. It was really a wonderful experience. I really liked the Instagram post you did the other day. I think it was maybe mm. a surfer cover. Yeah. Where you were talking about the, the experience mm. of that swell, mm. you and Simon Anderson. Yeah. yeah. I really liked that because it really gave, it really communicated, you know, the, the fear, the intimidation, yeah. the camaraderie. Yeah, you know all the things that obviously went into those experiences. Mm. I yeah. mean, that must be nice to have those visual. Yeah, and all the people that I got to surf with, my my heroes. You know, like, you know, I got to you know have good experiences with guys like Sean Thompson, who are who are extraordinary surfers, yeah. and at the time really influenced me. And uh, you know, and, and just like be around my heroes, you know. Yeah, uh, and get to learn off them directly yeah right right in front of me surfing with them and and getting that that inspiration directly from them like i couldn't have been in a better place and uh and i was getting you know like i was slipstreaming those guys <laughs> really uh and they were creating this tour and and i was sort of like just happily going along i didn't have a huge idea about making a whole lot of money i didn't right. have this big old thing about this or that i was just dreaming about um being a professional athlete yeah and doing the best i can for this sport being really good at what i was doing um whether it became a world champion i didn't even know i was going to become a world champion i didn't really go oh, i'm going to be a world champion one day right i just sort of finally got a chance to sniff it and someone else helped me get the belief. I didn't really believe it. Who's that? Um, my manager at the time was um, Peter Manstead, and he was a he was a bit of a nutcase. But <laughs> I read uh, I, I read a little story from I think the LA Times when I was researching this mm, from like eighty five. I'll put yeah. a link up, which was an interview with you and Peter. Mm. Um, uh, around this time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's he was. I'm going to say he's a nutcase. He was just, he was just passionate about what, he, what was going on. He was intense. Yeah. Uh, so it, it comes across like he had big ambitions. Big ambitions, yeah. huge, huge ideas. And I, I'd never had a manager. I didn't know how to do the business of surfing. I didn't know. I just wanted to surf. Yeah. And he came along with a proposal to be a manager. And I'm going, there's no such thing in surfing. Right. I think they'd been tried, it'd been once, but 
I'm going, okay, let's go for it. And But he had other ideas. He, had, he could see that I had a talent that I didn't quite understand yet. Right. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, so I didn't quite understand that I could actually do what I was about to do um, and until it was kind of sn- I could sniff it. So your motivation was a very personal about your surfing ability yeah. and about how you wanted to push yourself as yeah. a surfer. Yeah. It was him that came in and almost joined the dots to like the bigger picture, yeah. if you like. that's it. Right. And also that I did know uh, that I wanted to influence surfing. Really? In that way is it bringing it into kind of like the way other, other sports behaved. Um, what, you know, what, how do you mean then? What do you mean by that? Well, I knew there was a lot of performance to improve on um i don't know whether i was the one to do it but i um but i knew that there was you know athletes that were spending eight hours a day um and performing artists that were spending a good part of daylight hours um and even into the night hours doing what they love to do to perfect it and get better at it right. to improve at it so they, pre- they spent hours and hours and hours i was spending maybe three hours in the water a day. I was spending a lot of time also on top of that um, doing other stuff with, with surfing. Yeah. But I wasn't spending like huge amount of hours in the water until I started training for that first world title. So you saw like the, the levels of professionalism that were in other sports and you yeah. kind of thought that's what we should aspire to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I liked the idea of. I think I had that in my mind before I met Peter. Right. Uh, for some years, but I didn't know how to articulate it. Um, I was sort of making it up as I was going along. I didn't know, didn't have anyone in surfing other than, say, a few of the four runners like Sean Thompson. Yeah. Uh, and those guys are all trying to do their best to bring, make it a sport too. Yeah. Um, Mark Richards. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. people like that were really doing their best. You yeah. Know? Shane Horan was trying and, and he was a bit closer to me. Do you, think that, do you think those guys felt a similar responsibility? I think they did. I think they were yeah. trying to, we were at the front of something, God, we're going to make this into a professional sport. Right. I can actually do this for a living. Right. I can actually make this my life. Yeah. And uh, So growing up, you didn't, that wasn't really the something that well, you Well, it was sort of maybe a vague chance, yeah. but it was but not, not like now where yeah. it's like a path. That now you it's could, a solid path. Yeah. They've kids that want to, get coached you know yeah, like, exactly. and they've got their parents on top of them and they've yeah, got, yeah, yeah. got all that stuff I know it's like well, from when you're tiny you yeah can, you could see a potential path yeah. yeah you can see what the path is yeah back then back then it was no such thing it was yeah. super grey we're just making up as I was going we're waking up in the morning and doing whatever we were to become a professional surfer which was in fact there was so much like evidence in what everyone, all a lot of my friends wanted to call the real world. Right, right. That that was just a hoax. Yeah. <laughs> um, that why are you doing it? You know, what do you mean? Really? You know? Even yeah. To the level that you were surfing at? Yeah. Right. And they knew that. The, the, I mean, that sounds sort of crazy now. Yeah. There was people that thought, oh, well, it's a bit of a kind of like a, a bit of a hoax. But, right. Uh, but that was what it was like back then. The 80s was... You know, especially it would have been really hard for my father who worked as a journalist and, and you know, did six days work a week and went to an office and all of a sudden I'm out there in the ocean. Right. You know, doing this thing. It was so abstract. Did he understand it or? 
he tried his hardest right. to understand it. And right. I think he he really he backed us in whatever we wanted to do yeah. as kids. Yeah. He didn't get in the way of it. He just was I think he was staying off going, Oh, I'll just do what I gotta do, but my God, you better do something maybe do something um to back it up. Yeah. Just in case. Wow. You know? That's so funny. Yeah. And Tom Carroll was getting that chat. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard to see that from this point. Yeah. But in the eighties, in the seventies, late seventies and early eighties. Yeah. It was totally understandable. Yeah, sure. And as a parent. So, be, so Peter was somebody that came in and was like, No, we can do this and like mm. you say, gave you the mm. the confidence. Yeah, he, he certainly wanted to he wanted to become like um the next, you know, he wanted to start up a, a big, like, sports management company. Right. You know, he, he was looking big. He wanted to go big. And I was going, okay, well, maybe I'll go to my size big. <laughs> right. Uh, and I can look up further. I can go to where I can go. And I kind of went slipstream him for a little bit until I – and then, it, you know, some things didn't gel between us uh, eventually, but – um, yeah, a lot came came my way as a result of our partnership. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, so, with this perspective that you've got, as you've described, um, what what's your thoughts about the way it's turned out? Because if you had this idea that you and your contemporaries at mm. the time, does does the way that professional surfing is now live up to the expectations that you had? Do you think it's turned out in a good way? It's a big question, but you yeah. do have a unique perspective on that. Um, at the moment, I think it's brilliant. Um, you know, um, sometimes I question whether man on man is the is the great is the best um, competitive format for surfing, and really um, allows the surfer to express themselves wholly. But right. generally, it comes up with the right champ at yeah. the end of the year yeah, which yeah. is pretty obvious yeah. to me anyway you know with John John um, uh, and, and the great rivalries that we get you yeah know, and they still uh, come also, through don't they and also Tyler and you know all the girls and I, I love what's happening on the sport today it's exactly where surfing should be you know like um, not like way out there and you know with with the other you know the large huge audiences more still within its own grasp uh, and and still holding onto its still self, um, and its bef- and and where it actually lives with the with the ocean. Yeah. And and I guess they got the wave pools coming on, but I think that'll show us a whole other level. But yeah, um, of something completely different. Because you won the first comp, right? Yeah. Yeah. First inland. Which was <laughs> again in the eighties, wasn't it? Again, eighty five. Yeah, yeah. What was that experience like? Really cool. I liked it. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was really at the top of, top of my game at that point. I was coming into my th- third year as, as, you know, had a great posture as a sec, you know, two times world champ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was training really well. I was physically in a really good space, mentally in a really good space. And I'd won literally that and the first two events of that year, but that I was coming into that event and... It was also like our, our tour was so like broad in the way um, conditions could present themselves. They, events were, you know, they had to be specifically on any 
you know, it was a five-day event. Um, there was no waiting period. You just surfed those days no yeah. matter what. So surfing in a wave pool where it was really controlled. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was really open to and, and being really on top of my game physically, mentally, I really got to understand that uh, it became more of a scientific kind of equation. It was more I could understand where the power source was the wave, how much I could use of it, and it was a really, really defined kind of mark on every wave. Yeah. And it was, re it was repetitive, it was duplicatable. Um, and my performance, I found out which wave out of the 15 waves that they'd send out as, as a set of 15 waves, the 11th wave was the one. Right. How's that? Yeah, the yeah. 11th, And on the 11th, you know, it's okay. like, you know, the 11th wave was the one with the most draw, the most, um, the cleanest, and, and I've worked that out over the period of the event. It just didn't seem like anyone else sort of worked it out. Right. Um, right. But I liked that. I liked that fact that I could push it all the way to the end of the wave and that's all I could get out of it yeah and then could I actually push it a little bit further so you could use it as a full performance arena again yeah and yeah. I think that's what we're going to find yeah it's going to be the ultimate in the performance arena yeah. and duplicatable and and surfers are going to understand where they're at we're going to see it all revealed in the pool there's a lot <laughs> of hand wringing though isn't there there's mm. a lot of people that you know, there's a lot of talk about surfing, losing its soul and all this stuff and, you know, worries about style. Is that, is that anything you sort of well, buy into or are sympathetic to? Um, you look, oh, look I'm, um, I'm sympathetic to the fact that, um, you know, we've got a beautiful ocean out there. There's no need to make these pools. Uh, um, I can fully understand that. Uh, the, the, you know, the, uh, the ocean delivers incredible power that we can't duplicate uh, entirely in its entirety. It's just too too amazing and too beautiful. And I don't think um, the WSL and the wave pool creators are really out to do that. No, and, it's just um, a different experience. It's just a different experience. Um, as far as the soul, I, you know, I don't want someone to really, um, you give me what a soul is, like, I, I don't get it. Um, you know, our, it's a really hard thing to describe what a soul is. And, and for me, just the act of surfing, you know, it touches whatever that is inside us, no matter what we're doing, whoever we are, we're individuals. Yeah. And we've all got our, you know, and I, and I, you know, I think ultimately the experience is, you know, like, you know, is a, is a very individual one. Yeah. And go for it. Whatever well, you, you want to do, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to stamp in the way of that. <laughs> well, as, as as we sort of said earlier, as well, mm. you've always been somebody that's been really willing to try different craft and try different mm. water experiences. Yeah, you know the stand up. Yeah, paddleboarding that you've done mm. as well, and the way you embrace that. Mm. That seems like that's something that's always been there as well. You know. Yeah. Well, whatever's like touches your heart, you know, like and what lets it sing. I loved it when someone said that, oh, whatever, whatever lets your heart sing, Tom. I've gone, wow, that kind of spoke to me. I've gone, wow, that kind of, that's cool. Whatever makes your heart sing. And it's a beautiful kind of way of putting whatever kind of, kind of gets me going. I go out and surf, you know, and I connect with, you know, I've got, I've got 87 surfboards in my garage. So what one am I going to surf? one that makes my heart sing yeah you know so i go for the one that inspiring me at the moment and i just go out there and i and that's what sort of brings my you know my engagement out in the ocean 
uh, and and it might be in all other areas of my life, you know, yeah. and whatever makes my heart sing. Yeah. And if we connect with that, that kind of joy, you know, it, it, it some people want to call it soul or whatever, but, you know, um, the purists might go that way. The adventurers go the other way. Yeah. This and that. But ultimately, um, whatever makes us yeah, well, that's a, move. That's yeah. a comprehensive inclusive idea of it isn't it mm. whereas I, or I sometimes feel the people that criticize those type of developments is very restrictive isn't it they try to mm. pin it into like one yeah. experience that, that yeah. is the real experience if you like yeah and then actually do themselves in yeah by doing that because ultimately they get lost out there in that space yeah and all of a sudden they've kind of restricted their experience yeah um so I'm, I'm really wary of getting caught in that space. Yeah, sure. And, um, and, and I think um, if I'm pointing the finger at someone, I love that one, you know, the, you're pointing a finger and there's three pointing back at you. Yeah. So you're pointing one and there's three looking back. It's like we, we just go, I think we just got to be really careful about where we're coming from when we're sort of pointing the finger and, uh, and saying they're not right. Yeah, try and impose And I'm right and you're wrong. Yeah. I think... Um, it's kind of doesn't really serve me no mm. so on a similar subject to wave pools I mean the Olympics yeah. is in two years yeah how do you feel about that you looking forward yeah. to that that's a super interesting yeah. thing for surfing because that'll be the new mm. the new development really won't mm. it in the way that the world sees surfing yeah. and it'd be interesting to see how that changes it really uh, look ultimately um, you know if it's it seems to be moving that way there's like a quite a movement going that way I don't you know um, it's probably going to fumble its way into it uh, that's what I get a sense that it's all going to fumble its way into as surfing is it's, as we all know yeah. it's it's a tricky tricky environment um, to get the surf right you know we're never going to get the perfect wave we're never gonna get the, you know the surf's going to be crap and who's going to be the winner out of that da 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 ultimately you know we've got the the WSL they've got the dream tour we've got all this um, world championship tour and all these great venues and we've aimed towards that it's come over a long period of time and a big commitment to the sport to get to that point yeah whereas you know if we're off the coast of Japan in Chiba uh, at that particular time, the surf w w well, there's a good chance the surf's going to be super marginal. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to have all these countries and all these great, you know, like all this incredible effort uh, into a pretty marginal, well, potentially very marginal conditions. So that's what we're looking at at this point. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hotly contested, and there'll be a great congregation of the world of surfing. Um, under the flags of their countries yeah. and that feeling of that, which will be an extraordinary moment. But for me, um, you know, ultimately we'll find that, um, that I've got a good sense of that, that that's going to be the experience, the first Olympic surfing experience. But, you know, down the track, we may have wave pools involved down the track. If we look into the future and we look at the vision for surfing, um, maybe there's a lot more to it than what we're seeing right now yeah. in that in that idea of what's coming up yeah yeah mm. well it certainly took snowboarding um a very long well 20 20 years yeah to, to get anywhere near 
getting it right, really. Yeah. Um, That's a long period. Long period of time of growth. Yeah. yeah. So, what are we coming up? We're coming up to an hour. It's gone pretty quick. Yeah. So, when you look back at your career now, how do you feel about it? Yeah. Oh, I've been incredibly blessed to be able to uh, just be, uh, you know, held by my surfboard yeah you know be able to actually bring up a family and you know support them and uh still do what i love doing and challenge myself this has been an extraordinary experience yeah incredible experience i'm incredibly blessed um i'm 56 like go figure i thought it <laughs> was gonna end years ago right. like maybe 25 30 years ago like, yeah so uh you know i'd sort of decided to retire at around 31 and and, Did you have a plan? And uh, well, I just wanted to be involved with surfing. Yeah, you know that somehow. was that was my plan. Yeah, and um, and be involved within the surfing industry and s- somehow stick to um, surfing. Yeah, I, I mean, I always felt that I was in this for the long haul. Yeah, uh, in some way, shape, or form, and I didn't know how that was going to play out. So I invested my time with with Quicksilver and and we worked and I got involved with them on a business business level and. Yeah. and I've been involved with them for a long time, but that was that ended around the early two tens. Um, and but I've been involved with them f- from since then as well. Yeah. So as a, as an athlete, but involved with the industry in all different manners too. Yeah. Mm. So what's next when you when you healed up? Good question. Um, um, all this stuff made me really interested in um, in the healing arts. Okay. Um, so at the, this point, um, I guess it naturally points me in that direction. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out. Just this point, this at this point. Um, physiotherapy, um, you know, various other forms of of, um, of helping other people come through injury. Right. Um, also, you know, uh, it may it may be in the shape of coaching yeah uh um opportunities um still i just want to bring myself back to a performing level to be able to surf yeah um well it's going to be a bit of a job yeah yeah and, uh, but i'd like to be able to that's why i've done these surgeries really yeah uh sort of to like give yourself a, the chance give myself a good chance to go into my 60s and yeah feel really good about my surfing my body and uh stay in touch with it yeah Mm. Do you have any ambitions left in surfing? Ambitions, I think. I think just to be, just to keep going, just to keep going. Yeah, that that's it. Yeah, is uh, that's I'm really be happy to be able to surf a pretty big wave and yeah, um, still engage with it to yeah. some degree at at a, at a good level. Um, but I don't want to be the guy trying to surf a hundred foot wave. No, but I'd like to be able to challenge myself yeah get myself out of the comfort zone still and feel that mm. great well yeah. tom thanks a lot man it's been great yeah thanks a lot matt yeah it's an absolute pleasure awesome thank you so yeah there you go that was my chat with the great tom carroll and what a wonderful humble engaging and wise man i found him to be such a privilege that one I've been lucky enough to speak to so many absolute heroes since I've been doing this, but that one was really up there. And yeah, so much stuff that I didn't manage to capture on tape as well. After the chat proper, we headed for a coffee. I mentioned to Tom that I deliberately not not asked him to go over the snap again 
or talk about his addiction issues. And he said, thanks for that. Yeah, been asked the one about the snap a few times. And it is kind of strange to be so associated with one move and one moment, even though it is an honour. He was also full of more stories about the years on the tour, being a grommet with Simon Anderson and the rest of the Narrabeen boys, being left on his own on the North Shore. Bit more info on how his manager drilled him as a professional. And one of the things that really came across and is a common theme, I felt, is Tom's responsibility towards the sport how people with exceptional talent are almost duty-bound to develop their ability to the point they can drag the sport with them. Travis Rice had it, Lane Beachley certainly had it in the last episode, and Tom Carroll, I think you'll agree, also had it. I really loved the generosity of his vision for surfing as well and what constitutes the soul of surfing. To have come through the experience and physical lows that he has and still love riding as much as he does, well, I think that's something we can all definitely aspire to. So yeah, there you go. Thanks, Tom, and I hope everyone enjoyed that one. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm now back from Australia, as I mentioned, and I'm recording this one in the throes of some pretty heavy jet lag. I'm also prepping for a trip to Chamonix next week, where I'm hoping to get some of this snow everybody's been harping on about on social media under my base. And I'm also going to catch up with the great James Stentiford and attempt to record an interview with him once again. Keen-eared listeners will know that I did previously interview James in Devon in September 2017 and promptly lost the files. Dope. Anyway, I'm off splitboarding with James on his Chamonix home turf and I'm planning on uh, taking care of round two during that trip and hopefully recording a bit of that one in the field. So let's hear how that one goes and hope I don't balls it up again to the same degree. In the meantime, take it easy and I'll be back soon. Thanks for listening and see you later. (laughs) 